This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, October 31st, 2023, episode 103, The Demon Pope by Richard Garnett. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts, or in today's case, medievalistic texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. In a study crowded with books, a Victorian gentleman peruses a dusty tome and makes notes for a tale of devilry and deceit ripped from the headlines of a medieval chronicle. And as he inscribes some ancient words of the text on his own manuscript, a portal through time is opened up, and his lines spill out as interlopers in our own trek through the history of Gerbert Doriac, also known as Pope Sylvester II. Yes, our annual Halloween episode has barged in and interrupted our little Gerbert series, uh, but not really, since we are, indeed, still looking at a descendant of the dark legend of the magician Pope, as composed by a somewhat forgotten master of fantastical literature and historical weird fiction. It was on All Hallows' Eve of 2014 that the prologue and first episode of this show were posted to the web, which means this marks our ninth year going into our tenth. It hasn't always been a smooth journey, and the milestones have not always been spaced at regular intervals, but I'm so delighted to have had all of you along for the ride, and here's looking to hopefully a fruitful tenth year. I've built up quite a list of things I want to get to in our next span of episodes, and fingers crossed we'll be able to cap it all off with a big 10th anniversary special. But here for our ninth, we are diverting slightly from our period to look at a representation of the Middle Ages from another historical and literary perspective. Because the dark legend of Gerbert d'Auriac had life well beyond the Middle Ages and the Reformation. Today, we'll hear a Victorian retelling of the core elements of the legend. This story is The Demon Pope, published in 1888 in a collection of stories called The Twilight of the Gods and Other Tales. The author of this collection, Richard Garnett, or maybe Garnett, I'm seeing mixed pronunciations out there, uh, Richard Garnett was a scholar and librarian as well as a creative writer. He was born in 1835, and when he was just 16, he began working in the British Museum, which at the time was also the British Library. He rose to the office of superintendent of the reading room, and then, in 1890, became keeper of printed books until 1899, when he retired. During his career, he produced a number of translations from several languages, wrote literary biographies, contributed numerous encyclopedia articles, and also wrote poetry and fiction, like the story we'll hear today. The Twilight of the Gods and Other Tales is full of stories that draw from Garnet's knowledge of mythology, folklore, and history from many different cultures, uh, and was a book quite well regarded in its day. A reprinted and illustrated edition from 1924 featured an introduction by none other than T.E. Lawrence, who you might know as being of Arabia. The book was admired by George Orwell. The stories feel witty and pointed and lean in a way that contrasts with the pulpier Victorian genre fare or the purplish prose of more literary fantasists like Edgar Allan Poe or George MacDonald. Frankly, if you told me this story had been written by a postmodernist of the 1960s or 70s like John Barth or Donald Barthelme, I'd believe it. Garnet's work has a wonderfully wry wit to it. Even though its Wikipedia article deems The Twilight of the Gods a, quote, classic in the genre, 
uh, and cites a couple of its stories being included in a 1972 anthology of important fantasy literature as recognition of its legacy, my sense is that Garnet's work is not particularly well known today, even by fantasy enthusiasts. Maybe that's just me, inasmuch as I think of myself as a bit of an early fantasy literature enthusiast, and I hadn't heard of him before, but my intuition seems to be backed up by a quick Google search, which turns up virtually no online discourse about Garnet's stories. So maybe I can offer my own small contribution towards shining some light on his work. It is now in the public domain, so you can get the full text of the book freely online if you're interested in reading more. Before we start, a note of slight caution. There are some lightly insensitive references in this text, as one might expect from a Victorian author, um, but that could also be satirical winks at medieval attitudes. For example, the narrator makes a comment about a center of Islamic learning being a place where one could encounter the devil, though by the end of the story, I think you'll agree with me that this has to be a tongue-in-cheek remark. There are also many none-too-subtle satirical jabs at Catholicism throughout the story, uh, but I think that's less a specifically anti-Catholic bias on Garnett's part and more a general skepticism towards organized religion, uh, because that does crop up in some of his other stories. I don't think you'll be horribly offended by anything in this story, but I just wanted to acknowledge that there are some prejudicial attitudes at least being performed within this text. And Garnett is a Victorian writer, so it's always a point of concern just how deep such prejudices might run. From an admittedly small sampling of Garnett's work, uh, I can say that while he does write about other cultures without any modern qualms over appropriation, my general sense is that he merits the more positive label of cosmopolitan rather than colonialist, uh, though others may feel differently. And without further ado, here's a taste of Richard Garnett's fiction, The Demon Pope from 1888. So you won't sell me your soul, said the devil. Thank you, replied the student. I had rather keep it myself if it's all the same to you. But it's not all the same to me. I want it very particularly. Come, I'll be liberal. I said twenty years. You can have thirty. The student shook his head. Forty. Another shake. Fifty. As before. Now, said the devil, I know I'm going to do a foolish thing, but I cannot bear to see a clever, spirited young man throw himself away. I'll make you another kind of offer. We won't have any bargain at present, but I will push you on in the world for the next forty years. This day, forty years, I come back and ask you for a boon. Not your soul, mind, or anything not perfectly in your power to grant. If you give it, we are quits. If not, I fly away with you. What say you to this? The student reflected for some minutes. Agreed, he said at last. Scarcely had the devil disappeared, which he did instantaneously, ere a messenger reined in his smoking steed at the gate of the University of Cordova, the judicious reader will already have remarked that Lucifer could never have been allowed inside a Christian seat of learning, and, inquiring for the student Gerbert, presented him with the Emperor Otho's nomination to the Abbacy of Bobbio, in consideration, said the document, of his virtue and learning, well-nigh miraculous in one so young. Such messengers were frequent visitors during Gerbert's prosperous career. Abbot, bishop, 
Archbishop, Cardinal, he was ultimately enthroned Pope on April 2nd, 999, and assumed the appellation of Sylvester II. It was then a general belief that the world would come to an end in the following year, a catastrophe which to many seemed the more imminent from the election of a chief pastor whose celebrity as a theologian, though not inconsiderable, by no means equaled his reputation as a necromancer. The world, notwithstanding, revolved scatheless through the dreaded 12-month, and early in the first year of the 11th century, Gerbert was sitting peacefully in his study, perusing a book of magic. Volumes of algebra, astrology, alchemy, Aristotelian philosophy, and other such light reading filled his bookcase, and on a table stood an improved clock of his invention, next to his introduction of the Arabic numerals, his chief legacy to posterity. Suddenly, a sound of wings was heard, and Lucifer stood by his side. It is a long time, said the fiend, since I have had the pleasure of seeing you. I have now called to remind you of our little contract, concluded this day forty years. You remember, said Sylvester, that you are not to ask anything exceeding my power to perform. I have no such intention, said Lucifer. On the contrary, I am about to solicit a favor which can be bestowed by you alone. You are Pope. I desire that you would make me a cardinal. In the expectation, I presume, returned Gerbert, of becoming Pope on the next vacancy. An expectation, replied Lucifer, which I may most reasonably entertain, considering my enormous wealth, my proficiency in intrigue, and the present condition of the sacred college. You would doubtless, said Gerbert, endeavor to subvert the foundations of the faith, and, by a course of profligacy and licentiousness, render the Holy See odious and contemptible. On the contrary, said the fiend, I would extirpate heresy, and all learning and knowledge as inevitably tending thereunto. I would suffer no man to read but the priest, and confine his reading to his breviary. I would burn your books together with your bones on the first convenient opportunity. I would observe an austere propriety of conduct and be especially careful not to loosen one rivet in the tremendous yoke I was forging for the minds and consciousnesses of mankind. If it be so, said Gerbert, let's be off. What? exclaimed Lucifer. You are willing to accompany me to the infernal regions? Assuredly, rather than be accessory to the burning of Plato and Aristotle, and give place to the darkness against which I have been contending all my life. Gerbert, replied the demon, this is errant trifling. Know you not that no good man can enter my dominions? That, were such a thing possible, my empire would become intolerable to me, and I should be compelled to abdicate. I do know it, said Gerbert and hence I have been able to receive your visit with composure. Gerbert, said the devil, with tears in his eyes, I put it to you, is this fair? Is this honest? I undertake to promote your interest in the world. I fulfill my promise abundantly. You obtain through my instrumentality a position to which you could never otherwise have aspired. Often I have had a hand in the election of a pope, but never before have I contributed to confer the tiara on one eminent for virtue and learning. You profit by my assistance to the full, and now take advantage of an adventitious circumstance to deprive me of my reasonable guerdon. 
It is my constant experience that the good people are much more slippery than the sinners and drive much harder bargains. Lucifer, answered Gerbert, I have always sought to treat you as a gentleman, hoping you would approve yourself such in return. I will not inquire whether it was entirely in harmony with this character to seek to intimidate me into compliance with your demand by threatening me with a penalty which you well knew could not be enforced. I will overlook this little irregularity and concede even more than you have requested. You have asked to be a cardinal. I will make you pope. Ha! exclaimed Lucifer, and an internal glow suffused his sooty hide as the light of a fading ember is revived by breathing upon it. For twelve hours, continued Gerbert. At the expiration of that time, we will consider the matter further. And if, as I anticipate, you are more anxious to divest yourself of the papal dignity than you were to assume it, I promise to bestow upon you any boon you may ask within my power to grant and not plainly inconsistent with religion or morals. Done, cried the demon. Gerbert uttered some cabalistic words, and in a moment the apartment held two Pope Sylvesters, entirely indistinguishable save by their attire, and the fact that one limped slightly with the left foot. You will find the pontifical apparel in this cupboard, said Gerbert, and taking his book of magic with him, he retreated through a masked door to a secret chamber. As the door closed behind him, he chuckled and muttered to himself, Poor old Lucifer, sold again. If Lucifer was sold, he did not seem to know it. He approached a large slab of silver which did duty as a mirror and contemplated his personal appearance with some dissatisfaction. I certainly don't look half so well without my horns, he soliloquized, and I am sure I shall miss my tail most grievously. A tiara and a train, however, made fair amends for the deficient appendages, and Lucifer now looked every inch a pope. He was about to call the master of the ceremonies and summon a consistory when the door was burst open and seven cardinals, brandishing poniards, rushed into the room. Down with the sorcerer, they cried as they seized and gagged him. Death to the Saracen. Practices algebra and other devilish arts. Knows Greek. Talks Arabic. Reads Hebrew. Burn him. Smother him. Let him be deposed by a general council said a young and inexperienced cardinal. Heaven forbid, said an old and wary one, sotto voce. Lucifer struggled frantically, but the feeble frame he was doomed to inhabit for the next eleven hours was speedily exhausted. Bound and helpless, he swooned away. Brethren, said one of the senior cardinals, it hath been delivered by the exorcists that a sorcerer or other individual in league with the demon doth usually bear upon his person some visible token of his infernal compact. I propose that we forthwith institute a search for this stigma, the discovery of which may contribute to justify our proceedings in the eyes of the world. I heartily approve of our brother Anno's proposition, said another, the rather as we cannot possibly fail to discover such a mark, if indeed we desire to find it. The search was accordingly instituted, and had not proceeded far ere a simultaneous yell from all the seven cardinals indicated that their investigation had brought more to light than they had ventured to expect. The Holy Father had a cloven foot. For the next five minutes the cardinals remained utterly stunned, 
silent and stupefied with amazement. As they gradually recovered their faculties, it would have become manifest to a nice observer that the Pope had risen very considerably in their good opinion. This is an affair requiring very mature deliberation, said one. I always feared that we might be proceeding too precipitately, said another. It is written, the devils believe, said a third. The Holy Father, therefore, is not a heretic at any rate. Brethren, said Anno, this affair, as our brother Bino well remarks, doth indeed call for mature deliberation. I therefore propose that, instead of smothering His Holiness with cushions, as originally contemplated, we immure him for the present in the dungeon adjoining hereunto, and, after spending the night in meditation and prayer, resume the consideration of the business tomorrow morning. Informing the officials of the palace, said Benno, that His Holiness has retired for his devotions, and desires on no account to be disturbed. A pious fraud, said Anno, which not one of the fathers would for a moment have scrupled to commit. The cardinals accordingly lifted the still insensible Lucifer and bore him carefully, almost tenderly, to the apartment appointed for his detention. Each would fain have lingered in hopes of his recovery, but each felt that the eyes of his six brethren were upon him, and all, therefore, retired simultaneously, each taking a key of the cell. Lucifer regained consciousness almost immediately afterwards. He had the most confused idea of the circumstances which had involved him in his present scrape, and could only say to himself that if they were the usual concomitants of the papal dignity, these were by no means to his taste, and he wished he had been made acquainted with them sooner. The dungeon was not only perfectly dark, but horribly cold, and the poor devil in his present form had no latent store of infernal heat to draw upon. His teeth chattered, he shivered in every limb, and felt devoured with hunger and thirst. There is much probability in the assertion of some of his biographers that it was on this occasion that he invented ardent spirits. But even if he did, the mere conception of a glass of brandy could only increase his sufferings. So the long January night wore wearily on, and Lucifer seemed likely to expire from inanition when a key turned in the lock, and Cardinal Anno cautiously glided in, bearing a lamp, a loaf, half a cold roast kid, and a bottle of wine. I trust, he said, bowing courteously, that I may be excused any slight breach of etiquette of which I may render myself culpable from the difficulty under which I labor of determining whether, under present circumstances, your holiness or your infernal majesty be the form of address most befitting me to employ. Boo, boo, went Lucifer, who still had the gag in his mouth. Heavens, cried the cardinal, I crave your infernal holiness's forgiveness. What a lamentable oversight. And relieving Lucifer from his gag and bonds, he set out the refection upon which the demon fell voraciously. Why the devil, uh, if I may so express myself, pursued Anno, did not your holiness inform us that you were the devil? Not a hand would then have been raised against you. I have myself been seeking all my life for the audience now happily vouchsafed me. Whence this mistrust of your faithful Anno, who has served you so loyally and zealously these many years? Lucifer pointed significantly to the gag and fetters. I shall never forgive myself, protested the cardinal, for the part I have borne in this unfortunate transaction. 
next to ministering to your majesty's bodily necessities, there is nothing I have so much at heart as to express my penitence. But I entreat your majesty to remember that I believed myself to be acting in your majesty's interest by overthrowing a magician who was accustomed to send your majesty upon errands, and who might at any time enclose you in a box and cast you into the sea. It is deplorable that your majesty's most devoted servant should have been thus misled. Reasons of state, suggested Lucifer. I trust that they no longer operate, said the cardinal. However, the sacred college is now fully possessed of the whole matter. It is therefore unnecessary to pursue this department of the subject further. I would now humbly crave leave to confer with your majesty, or rather, perhaps, your holiness, since I am about to speak of spiritual things, on the important and delicate point of your holiness's successor. I am ignorant how long your holiness proposes to occupy the apostolic chair, but of course you are aware that public opinion will not suffer you to hold it for a term exceeding that of the pontificate of Peter. A vacancy, therefore, must one day occur, and I am humbly to represent that the office could not be filled by one more congenial than myself to the present incumbent, or on whom he could more fully rely to carry out in every respect his views and intentions." And the cardinal proceeded to detail various circumstances of his past life, which certainly seemed to corroborate his assertion. He had not, however, proceeded far ere he was disturbed by the grating of another key in the lock, and he had just time to whisper impressively, Beware of Benno, ere he dived under a table. Benno was also provided with a lamp, wine, and cold viands. Warned by the other lamp and the remains of Lucifer's repast that some colleague had been beforehand with him, and not knowing how many more might be in the field, he came briefly to the point as regarded the papacy, and preferred his claim in much the same manner as Anno. While he was earnestly cautioning Lucifer against this cardinal as one who could and would cheat the very devil himself, another key turned in the lock, and Benno escaped under the table, where Anno immediately inserted his finger into his right eye. The little squeal consequent upon this occurrence, Lucifer successfully smothered by a fit of coughing. Cardinal number three, a Frenchman, bore a Bayonne ham and exhibited the same disgust as Benno on seeing himself forestalled. So far as his request transpired, they were moderate, but no one knows where he would have stopped if he had not been scared by the advent of Cardinal number four. Up to this time, he had only asked for an inexhaustible purse, power to call up the devil ad libitum, and a ring of invisibility to allow him free access to his mistress, who was unfortunately a married woman. Cardinal number four chiefly wanted to be put into the way of poisoning cardinal number five, and cardinal number five preferred the same petition as respected cardinal number four. Cardinal number six, an Englishman, demanded the reversion of the archbishoprics of Canterbury and York with the faculty of holding them together, and of unlimited non-residence. In the course of his harangue, he made use of the phrase non obstantibus, of which Lucifer immediately took a note. What the seventh cardinal would have solicited is not known, for he had hardly opened his mouth when the twelfth hour expired, and Lucifer, regaining his vigor with his shape, sent the prince of the church spinning to the other end of the room, and split the marble table with a single stroke of his tail. The six crouched and huddling cardinals cowered, revealed to one another, and at the same time enjoyed the spectacle of His Holiness darting through the stone ceiling, 
which yielded like a film to his passage and closed up afterwards as if nothing had happened. After the first shock of dismay, they unanimously rushed to the door, but found it bolted on the outside. There was no other exit and no means of giving an alarm. In this emergency, the demeanor of the Italian cardinals set a bright example to their ultramontane colleagues. Bisogna pazienza, they said, as they shrugged their shoulders. Nothing could exceed the mutual politeness of Cardinals Anno and Benno, unless that of the two who had sought to poison each other. The Frenchman was held to have gravely derogated from good manners by alluding to this circumstance, which had reached his ears while he was under the table. And the Englishman swore so outrageously at the plight in which he found himself that the Italians then and there silently registered a vow that none of his nation should ever be Pope, a maxim which, with one exception, has been observed to this day. Lucifer, meanwhile, had repaired to Sylvester, whom he found arrayed in all the insignia of his dignity, of which, as he remarked, he thought his visitor had probably had enough. I should think so indeed, replied Lucifer. But, at the same time, I feel myself fully repaid for all I have undergone by the assurance of the loyalty of my friends and admirers, and the conviction that it is needless for me to devote any considerable amount of personal attention to ecclesiastical affairs. I now claim the promised boon, which it will be in no way inconsistent with thy functions to grant, seeing that it is a work of mercy. I demand that the cardinals be released, and that their conspiracy against thee, by which I alone suffered, be buried in oblivion. I hoped you would carry them all off, said Gerbert, with an expression of disappointment. Thank you, said the devil. It is more to my interest to leave them where they are. So the dungeon door was unbolted, and the cardinals came forth, sheepish and crestfallen. If, after all, they did less mischief than Lucifer had expected from them, the cause was their entire bewilderment by what had passed and their utter inability to penetrate the policy of Gerbert, who henceforth devoted himself even with ostentation to good works. They could never quite satisfy themselves whether they were speaking to the Pope or to the devil, and when, under the latter impression, habitually emitted propositions which Gerbert justly stigmatized as rash, temerarious, and scandalous. They plagued him with allusions to certain matters mentioned in their interviews with Lucifer, with which they naturally but erroneously supposed him to be conversant, and worried him by continual nods and titterings as they glanced at his nether extremities. To abolish this nuisance, and at the same time silence sundry unpleasant rumors which had somehow got abroad, Gerbert devised the ceremony of kissing the Pope's feet, which, in a grievously mutilated form, endures to this day. The stupefaction of the cardinals on discovering that the Holy Father had lost his hoof surpasses all description, and they went to their graves without having obtained the least insight into the mystery. So there you have The Demon Pope by Richard Garnet. I mentioned John Barth and literary postmodernist earlier, and I think Garnet is in this tradition of nerd storytellers, uh, those who love to pepper their work with jokes and Easter eggs that draw on obscure points in history or the classics or early science. 
Today, this tradition largely survives only in the form of writers who play in the space of pop culture references, uh, where readers delight in seeing an obscure character from the Star Wars holiday special being referenced and thereby given the weight of canonicity in, say, an episode of The Mandalorian or Ahsoka. But I feel like it's harder to find the people still counting on their readers having deep knowledge of history or literature to get their references. Uh, Thomas Pynchon is in there, but he's basically of that 1970s postmodernist generation. In comics, Alan Moore carries the torch for historical obscurities and the pop culture of bygone ages. Uh, maybe someone like Seth Graham Smith of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is doing something near that level. Uh, but I haven't actually read his work, and a cursory glance makes me think it's at best operating at an introductory level of deep reference. Maybe this kind of nerd tradition is just too elitist for our present day, and I can see the argument for that. However, I also feel it's a bit of a loss to literature and to nerd culture. But I know there are lots of smaller authors out there working in the niches of historical fiction and weird fiction and historical weird fiction, so if you have any recommendations for me, please toss them to me via social media. We are at MDT Podcast on the service formerly known as Twitter before it made its devil's bargain, and at Medieval Death Trip on Instagram and on Mastodon as at Medieval Death Trip at medievalist.masto.host. But we're not ready to end the episode yet. We have to do a little annotation before we go. So, the phrase the English cardinal uses that catches the devil's attention is non obstantibus. This is a reference to a legal clause in canon law, non obstantibus legibus in contrarium facientibus, which means notwithstanding laws to the contrary. This was used to assert the supremacy of the Pope's power and judgment, uh, that the papal mandate overrides any existing law. And this form of clause appears elsewhere in medieval statutes, generally providing cover for a state or state official to do as they like. One can see why the devil would be a fan of this particular loophole. Also, one modern flavor of the non-obstantibus clause that's a bit less sinister is the common boilerplate we find in a lot of modern board games, where it might say, for example, any rules found on a specific card or item that contradict this rulebook should be followed instead of the rulebook which is fine and understandable, but has always nagged at me as a sign of the crawling chaos seeping in at the margins of game design. Also, I hope some of you caught an appearance by one of our mystery words of yore, inanition, uh, which we learned about back in episode 37 concerning a prank, a king's death, manslaughter, and a false pregnancy. So, if you didn't catch that and want to know just what it was that Lucifer was suffering in the dungeon— go back and check out the end of episode 37. And you can also check out more Richard Garnett if today's story appealed to you. Uh, here's a sampling of the titles of some of the other tales in The Twilight of the Gods. You have the title story, of course, but also The Dumb Oracle, The Bell of St. Euskimon, and Alexander the Ratcatcher. Also, The Claw, which is another tale of a deal with the devil set in 16th century Venice, and The Purple Head, in which a philosopher ends up with his head dyed uh, a particular color and the unfortunate consequences thereof. If any of you are studying or working at the University of Texas at Austin, the Harry Ransom Center has 76 boxes of material from the papers of Richard Garnett, including several handwritten and revised manuscripts of his poems and fiction, uh, among which a version of The Claw is included, 
So if you want to kick off the next scholarly rediscovery of Garnet's literary work, you've got a great resource there. I know we have waiting in the wings the math problem that I left you with last episode, uh, which will be resolved in our conclusion to this Gerbert series next time, but we can have a little mini-mystery word drawn from our text. Our word is Gurdon. G-U-E-R-D-O-N. Gurdon. We find it in the demon pope when the devil complains to Gerbert, You profit by my assistance to the full, and now take advantage of an adventitious circumstance to deprive me of my reasonable guerdon. As context suggests, guerdon means reward or due payment. It makes one of its first appearances in Middle English in Chaucer, who uses it in the Romance of the Rose, and the spelling tells us that it's been borrowed from French. But it is not, at heart, a romance word. Uh, The French got it from a Latinization of an old High German word, Witterlon, which had an Old English counterpart, Witherleon. The two components there are wither, again or against, and leon, payment. Uh, In Old English usage, it seems often to have had a more oppositional sense of retribution rather than just recompense. But the Old English word doesn't really survive into the Middle English period, and so we have to borrow its zombified descendant back from French. For the holiday, I want to share a couple of playlists I put together on Spotify that might enhance your evening. One is called MDT Spooky and features a selection of atmospheric instrumentals for a Halloween background mood. Uh, They aren't specifically medieval, but I've looked for things that I think at least have a tonal kinship with the show. In a similar vein, I have a second playlist there called MDT Spooky Songbook, which is eerie songs with lyrics. You can find these playlists by searching Spotify for MDT Spooky and MDT Spooky Songbook, or you can find direct links on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, over in the sidebar. At that website, you can also find more information about this and every episode, and you can send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And since I already covered our social media earlier, I won't rehash that here. But I would like to thank our new and returning Patreon supporters, David, Glenn, B, and Genevieve. Thank you all for your support. Anyone can become a Patreon supporter and get access to bonus audio content for as little as a dollar a month. That's at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. So, happy Halloween, or perhaps All Souls Day, or even Thanksgiving if you're catching up with us later down the road. May you get your just guerdon, non obstantibus, and thanks for listening.